You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today we are joined by Mark Baer, president of Baer Strategic Consulting, a boutique communications firm outside of Washington, D.C., that helps universities and research institutes get funding and effectively communicate the real-world impact of their work to their most important stakeholders. Mark previously served as a chief of staff in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives during a 20-year Capitol Hill career. He has appeared in Science, Forbes, The New Yorker, Barron's, and other publications and serves as a guest lecturer in the Science Policy Bootcamp course at Cornell University's Medic School of Biomedical Engineering. Mark is a graduate of Cornell University and earned his Master in Public Policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Welcome, Mark. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thanks, Lisa. It is great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. And um, you've had a really amazing career, Mark. It's really incredible. You spent 20 years on Capitol Hill, which included time served as the chief of staff in both the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. And during that time, you were involved in some pretty key legislation like Obamacare and 9-11 security. Can you talk about your career journey and how you ended up in the business of working with scientists and universities and research institutes? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, part of it really started on the Hill when, first of all, we always had PhDs, scientists in our office for a year on a rotating basis. Um, They were fellows. They were science and technology fellows sponsored by their scientific societies and administered by the AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science. So I always did a lot of mentoring as a senior staffer in the office, you know, dropped into this environment with not a lot of experience in many cases, but really smart people, you know, just needed some help and get oriented because it was a completely different world. The other aspect of it from the Hill was that I was on the other side of so many presentations, pitches, requests, letters from scientists, you know, from universities, from institutes looking for federal funding for their research. And I saw the good, the bad and the ugly sometimes in terms of the presentation, you know, so I I, I learned a lot that way, uh, sort of how to do it well and pitfalls to avoid. And I, you know, part of what I do now is really help in, you know, equip and empower research institutes and scientists and uh, and universities um, to, to put together really strong, crisp presentations to members of Congress and staff and other key stakeholders. Wow. And one of the things I'm curious about, Mark, because you and I obviously talked before the podcast was, you know, during your time up on Capitol Hill, you spent part of that time writing speeches in which you had to convey complex policy to a layperson in a way that they could understand. So you could had to break down these really um, 
difficult concepts. And you also were dealing with the media. So you had to communicate policy to them uh, as well. And sometimes you weren't given a whole lot of time to, to do that and to prepare. Walk us through what that was like and how you actually learned over the course of your career on the Hill to do that. Absolutely. And that was a good challenge. I bet. <laughs> you know, and uh, you learn by doing, you learn by getting feedback, you see what works and what is not as effective. And, you know, as far as the speeches go, um, you know, it's an iterative process. You you start out, you have ideas, aspects. Of course, you're also writing in the voice of somebody else, right? You know, these aren't speeches at the time. I give speeches now all the time. But at that point in my career, I was writing for Representative Ed Markey and then Senator Ed Markey and then also during the campaign. And so you develop sort of, you know, sort of mental frameworks. You know, there are, are ways to present your information, then sequence it. You know, oftentimes we were very conscious, particularly with TV of how little time you actually have to make your point. And so leading with the most important element, the real um, highlight that you want the listener to or the viewer to come away with was something that we did all the time. And, you know, thinking about that, making sure that opener was brief, was crisp, was memorable, and that also drew upon sometimes rhetorical devices. I mean, sort of my background, if you go go back to high school, I took three years of Latin. Oh, wow. I loved it, actually. Mrs. Faherty was my teacher all three years. I think she was the only Latin teacher at Framingham North High School in Massachusetts, where I grew up. And she really breathed life into what some people derisively say is a dead language, which I'm, of course, I would say, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's echoes go throughout what we talk about now, but these rhetorical tools, you know, illusion, metaphor, simile, using pop culture references, um, all ways to relate to the listener, present something that's sort of familiar to the listener, as then you're going to introduce something that's new rather than jumping in. It's like jumping into a freezing cold pond, you know, maybe you should ease into it a little bit before you do that and then allow people to get a frame of reference and then add on this new aspect to it. So there are certain techniques and strategies that that I use. And of course, I was listening all the time to other amazing orators and communicators, including my boss. Um, and so I kind of came up with a blend of you know rhetoric from the classics. I also uh, at one point was fluent in French, uh, lived in Paris. And so having that other language ability and understanding sort of the need to translate, not word for word, but ideas um, was ingrained in, in me. And now sort of it's kind of in my DNA. I kind of think in those terms, for some reason, alliteration is, is often how I, I think, you know, using the same letter to start um, several words in a row, acronyms, things that also are memorable. Um, and so over the course of, of time, and it could be really stressful. I mean, not highly visible things, you know, writing a speech that the, uh, my boss at the time was going to deliver during a rally, uh, where president Obama was going to introduce him, um, was one, one great memory that I have and putting that, together. And, you know, there are always these last minute things that you want to add. So I'm standing there with the blue pen, you know, over the typed written pages. And I'm, you know, I just remember that visibly. We're in the locker room at the, at the school and, you know, getting, walking down the hall and feeling like, all right, I got to get this. I got to get this in right before he, he goes to the podium. 
Um, and, uh, and so moments like that stay with you, but I'd say the good news is the more, once you learn how to do this, the more you practice it, you get positive feedback, you want to do more of it, you continue to refine it and you get more positive feedback. It's a real virtuous cycle and it can really give you a lot of gratification. I really loved being able to do that. And, um, it's something that I, I try to equip scientists with as well. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I wanted to dig deeper into um, communicating because, as you mentioned, that's what you do and you have a tremendous amount of experience in it. And I wanted to ask, what would you say is the fundamental first step that's essential for communicating, regardless of the form, whether you're talking about speaking or writing or even something as simple as an email? Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of people miss this and it's understandable why. I really think. It is attention. It is you need to capture and keep the attention of your listener or your reader. And that has to be done right away. We are bombarded with so much information all the time. And there's a lot of competition. Um, in fact, most of it emanates from a handheld device with a <laughs> glass, yes. thin glass sheet, which is always there, right? And so as a speaker, as a writer, you need to be very cognizant of the need to grab attention immediately. And it's funny because I actually use this sometimes in my keynotes is that, you know, Motown, for those of you who are familiar with, you know, Diana Ross Supremes and CB Wonder and Jackson 5, you know, the, the person who founded Motown was a guy named, he's still alive, Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy. And they asked him, you know, you've had all these number one hits, like, how do you do it? And he said, uh, cause he's written and produced all these, all these hits. And he said, you have to get the, you have to get their attention in the first 10 seconds. You gotta, you gotta hook them in the first 10 seconds, really. And I, I'm a big believer in that. So, you know, the other issue is when you talk about attention, like, well, how do you do it? And it, it starts with getting a re, you know, real understanding of what is your listener or your reader most interested in, you know, and that has to be your lead um, because it has to be, you know, you sort of have to take yourself out of your own. And sometimes it's hard, right? Your, your own d depth of where you are in your project where you are in your invention, all these things are, they're almost like children to you, right? That you want to talk about them all the time. But the listener is really interested in the results, not what it took to get there. So understanding what attention is and, and how to get it. And then using, you know, strong verbs. I mean, those are really important because the other aspect of this is brevity. Um, you know, it's not, easy being brief. <laughs> it's not easy to distill all this information down and just leaving the most essential, the most important, again, from your listener reader's perspective, information, and then delivering that right away. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a big aspect of it is, you know, you need to be crisp, you need to be brief, you need to start right away grabbing attention by leading with the elements of your presentation that are the most important priorities for your listener. And I think that's really great and, and really helpful. So you've got the listener's attention. So what would you recommend comes next? Yeah, good question. And this one, again, you know, we're logical creatures. We also, of course, are influenced by emotion. Um, we tend to think 
in a linear a linear form. So I could tell you about my career journey. Oh, well, let me start back in middle school and high school. And but what you really care about is what I did that's relevant to your work, right? If you're in a tech transfer office or you're, you know, working with um, startups and so forth, that's what you really care about. You're not interested in way back in my history, right? I might love to talk about that <laughs> um, because I lived it, right? And I've got these great memories and, I you bet. know, all these things and totally natural, but we actually have to move away from this idea that we need to begin or deliver in a linear fashion because, your listener is never going to get to the end of that line with you when you get to the punchline, so to speak, the thing that the person really cares about. So you need to, what I like to you know, say, you really need to start in the middle. Um, you can't just get to the point. You need to start at the point. So I can just tell you briefly, I did a, a keynote a couple months ago, and here's an example of what I mean by that. Um, it was for data scientists, right, at a conference. And, you know, so much data, so much information. And they're asked, you know, can you answer this question? Should we partner with this other organization? Or should we go ahead with this um, acquisition, for example? Or should we invest in this company? And there's a tendency, these, you know, what I was sort of seeing and I was told as I was talking to data scientists was that there's so much information elements that could go into that decision. So the person starts responding to that question kind of from the beginning, right? Doesn't answer the question directly, wants to kind of give all this background before getting to it. And the problem is that for people who are pressed for time, you know, who really need the answer and not the process, that can, that's very frustrating. So what you kind of need to do is start in the middle. So I actually started this speech by saying, you are going to forget 90% of what I tell you this morning. You know, and it won't be because you're not paying attention. It's because that's the way our brains are wired. Within the next 48 hours, you're going to start forgetting almost everything that I have to say. And you can retain about 10 to 12%. And there's not a lot I can do to move that needle, to make it more than 10 to 12% of your uh, retention of what I have to say. But I can influence what you remember. Right. And so that's how that's why we really want to underline our main point starting in the beginning. Right. Because we do, as humans, tend to remember the first thing someone says and the last thing that somebody says better than the things in the middle. So the first part of what I did there was I grabbed their attention. Like there aren't a lot of speakers out there probably saying, you're going to forget just about everything I have to say within the next two days. Definitely not. You know, people are like, well, it's, yeah, I'm a speaker. I'm going to, they're going to, they're going to be wrapped you know, they're going to be so dialed in and listening the entire time. So you start with that sort of like going against conventional wisdom. So right away, their brain is interested in that because it might learn something. You might learn something different from what you've heard all the time. Right. Um, and then, you know, I came back at the end of that talk to give them almost like a reframing of that first point. Right. And that you really need to pay attention to the um, to the first thing that you say, um, and you really need to pay attention to that message. What do you want your ten second, or should I say, ten percent takeaway to be? If you only have ten percent of the retention there of your audience within the next, say, forty eight hours, what do you want it to be? Because you can't increase it more than about that, and really be deliberate and lead with that, and reinforce that, and refer back to that. And it must be interesting working with scientists because I'm a scientist myself and as well as a patent attorney. And 
it's hard for us to start in the middle because we're trained, you know, to show all our work and explain how we got to the result we did. So that must be um, interesting for you when, when you work with scientists. For sure. And, you know, it's when you feel uncomfortable and when it feels strange, that's when you know you're doing it right. <laughs> you know, it's not the usual way of doing it. I don't want to just, it's sort of like telling the punchline of a joke first and then doing the lead up and the setup after. It just doesn't seem natural to the way we, you know, communicate, right? But we're in a, what I sort of want to say is sort of where that's true in certain environments. But when you're talking to general audiences, when talking to potential investors, when you're talking to policymakers, when you're talking to people and trying to persuade, you really do need to follow this other sequencing, right? Because that's um, for the reasons that we talked about earlier, the the competition for attention and people's, you know, focus on what does it mean to me, really? You know, why, why should I care about what you're talking about? What, all those other things that you might mention about this experiment and how it led to that, and you had that idea and you collaborated with this other person, that doesn't impact me. I really just want to know what impacts me the most when it, as it relates to my my number one priority. And, and the being brief part, I mean, this is where the challenge comes in, but you get really good at distilling your information down. And whenever you think you're, maybe talking about process, you know, you're losing, you're losing it. You're losing attention. You're raising the risk that your listener is going to be tuning out and going to alternate places like a phone uh, or even alternate thoughts about all the other things that they need to do because you're not delivering information that's relevant, that involves results, or that has like a real world impact in their world. And that's why that's the way our brain needs to filter because there is so much stimuli. We really need to filter out things that don't impact us or the people that we care about. Now, you've worked with a lot of scientists and you've developed something called the RISE system to help empower them to get their voices heard. Can you tell us what the RISE system is and how exactly it works? Sure. And I, I feel so fortunate that I am able to work with scientists every day, particularly as a non-scientist. You know, my last science course was AP Bio, <laughs> you know, in high school, which I did enjoy very much. But I knew that the sciences was not going to be where I concentrated my research, uh, my work. Um, and so the, the RISE system is really a blend of things that come from classic rhetoric that I learned things from negotiation, which I studied when I was in graduate school at the Kennedy School, um, things that I know work based on being at these uh, high impact and highly visible, um, intense environments on Capitol Hill, um, and then some kind of communication principles. So, and persuasion, I should say as well, which is, which is a big part of it. I mean, why do we communicate? Well, we want to get our message our information and our thoughts, we want those to have an impact and affect and influence our listener or our reader. And so incorporating this persuasion and the principles that um, relevant principles that are there is also part of the RISE system. So RISE is an acronym, which of course is a rhetorical tool, which is just raising the influence of scientists and engineers. And I just felt sort of how I got into this work um, was that in many cases, data and evidence and science, those were being marginalized in the policymaking process, which is sort of my entree into this, given my background. And I thought that would be disastrous and was, 
you know, was already damaging and still has the potential to be disastrous for all of us if if policies about clean air and clean water, even inventions, you know, are not being based on the evidence. And so I wanted to empower and equip scientists with some of this other way of thinking and communicating that might just not be the way they're typically used to doing it. But I know from from my work that it actually is proven powerful and it does produce, you know, does produce results as far as impacting your listener or your reader. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about how you work with tech transfer offices and how you can help them as well as the researchers that they serve? Sure. And, you know, I have been working with big research universities for a long time. Um, I've recently started to talk to tech transfer offices because I was approached by someone at a tech transfer office in a major university who said, I think you could help us. And that led me going to the autumn conference in Austin in February, 2023 and, and talking to all these great people who are doing such important work and, and involved in getting these discoveries out there. Many of the, I think that the reason this person approached me from a tech transfer office was because the, the many of the issues that I'm talking about really relate uh, to tech transfer. You know, how do you describe these inventions, you know, both to potential licensees, how do you market that? How do you develop sort of business development plans? And um, also to, uh, faculty, you know, how does that interaction go between faculty, researchers, and tech transfer offices? A lot of stakeholders involved. And stakeholder management, in addition to demonstrating impact, which is so critical, and sometimes I say, well, you know, you've got all these different stakeholders. On the Hill, there were there was always this constellation of different stakeholders. You had you know, committee members on the committee that had authority over your issue. You had interest groups that were impacted and every day were working on the issues that you were talking about when you were proposing an initiative, for example, when the boss would propose one. And so you really had to understand who are all the people out there, the groups and so forth on various sides of the issue who could be affected by what we're doing and also could influence how or whether we're even able to move forward with this. So I kind of got really good at doing that assessment. And I know that stakeholder management is an important aspect of tech transfer offices. And I always say, you know, you want to demonstrate impact. Clearly, you want to show your value. And that's sort of what we were talking about earlier. How do you do that? And then the other thing is understanding that really impact is in the eye of the stakeholder. <laughs> you know, I it was beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But impact is in the eye of the stakeholder. And you have to understand different aspects uh, and different interests uh, that are out there and how demonstrating impact, you need to calibrate how you communicate impact, for example, depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking in a policymaking office, they would probably want to know, well, you're going to, you know, is this is this spin out potentially or this discovery potentially going to create jobs in the district or in the state that I represent, for example? You know, if you're talking to an investor or a potential licensee, it's sort of like, you know, what kind of timeline are we talking about? What are the risks of this not working, for example? So really understanding and dialing into how impact is understood is uh, is a challenge, but it's something that I did a lot of. So that's both communicating the impact, but before doing that, really understanding what does impact mean to these different stakeholders in this very rich kind of stakeholder um, environment that the tech transfer offices find themselves within. 
And you're also a podcaster. Um, you have your own podcast that's called When Science Speaks. So tell us a little bit about your podcast and who some of your guests are. Yeah, no, well, and of course, we've talked offline, Lisa, about having you on the show because I think you would be a fantastic guest. Well, thank you. Sure, it's uh, it's true when I describe what our focus is on when science speaks is you'll list listeners will will see that clearly i mean um about five years ago i started this podcast and it really has two focuses one is this communication aspect you know sharing information about how to effectively communicate the complexities of your work to people who aren't familiar with it in ways that are engaging interesting and memorable and uh, bring scientists on who are fantastic scientists and also amazing communicators to talk about how they how this whole thing happened because many of us myself included are strong in one area or another they're really really verbal or they're really sort of math science oriented to one degree or another um, and so we talk about that and have scientists talk about their own journey when it comes to that and the other is careers you know tech transfer is a wonderful career choice for many people and i don't think in my work with research universities you know over the years that there's really an understanding of maybe there might not even be a knowledge of the existence of tech transfer offices. And if there is, they might not be a good understanding of what are the different roles and why are they important and how do they come to be and all those sorts of things. So I really want to get the word out about careers outside of academia, because first of all, I have the most experience in that area. Certainly um, I have my master's, but I didn't pursue a PhD. I haven't spent a lot of time as a, a student compared to a PhD and, and a postdoc process, for example, when you're a trainee at that point. Um, but because only about you know tw 10 to 12% of PhDs are staying within academia, um, you have this huge population of almost 90% of PhDs who are looking for meaningful, impactful jobs outside of the academy. And clearly tech transfer is one of them. And I think it's one that's sort of little known within uh, within academia. So that's really those two aspects is really, you know, why we start, why, why I started. As far as the guests, you know, I've been fortunate to have amazing guests. Uh, they've had everyone from uh, a former op-ed editor for the New York Times talking about persuasion and, and what they were always looking for in these op-eds. Um, Jonah Berger, who might be familiar to some listeners, is a professor at Wharton and really an expert in the use of language to persuade. Um, I had the first Black woman in U.S. history to ever get a PhD um, in chemical engineering, um, and it was wonderful to have her tell her story um, about how that came to be. I've had you know, scientists who are on tenure track and uh, Carnegie Mellon and other other places um, and people like Dory Clark who um, talk about different careers and, you know, how to um, navigate and maybe even how to shift careers depending on what's happening and has written books like Entrepreneurial You, for example, and has a new book out, relatively new, called The Long Game, which I would recommend to folks too. So it's been a rich, you know, 200 plus episodes and, and counting. And I always learn a lot from guests and I, I hope listeners do as well. Yeah. And uh, a couple of things that you mentioned there. First of all, um, in terms of tech transfer as a career, it is an amazing career. And, and I agree 100% with you that a lot of PhDs and postdocs aren't aware of tech transfer as a career opportunity. Um, and that's something that I think um, 
many people are working to try and change. And then in terms of the podcast, I, if I'm a lot like you. I learn so much from every guest and I'm always continually amazed by the people on the podcast and their stories and, and the information that they're able to share. And so I would encourage listeners to really give Mark's podcast a, a try. It's really excellent. I did listen to several episodes and and I think you'll really, really enjoy it. So um, keep going, Mark. You're you're doing a great job with your podcast. Thanks, Lisa. It means a lot. And um, I will mention one other thing just very briefly. So When Science Speaks is the podcast. You can go to whensciencespeaks.com. You can also go to any of the platforms that you like to use. Apple or Spotify or anything. I recently, within the last year, started a weekly newsletter um, and it's called One for the Week. And essentially, it's one nugget of wisdom in the same universe of communication, negotiation, persuasion, and rhetoric that I have uh, either found to be helpful, you know, powerful, and uh, or also curating articles and infographics and other things in the same universe that other people are putting together. If you're interested in the newsletter, you can subscribe just by going to oneforTheWeek.com. That's one spelled out. So oneforTheWeek.com, and you can check out some past episodes. Uh, sorry, past issues. Um, and then if you'd like to join, I think I'm up to like 800 plus subscribers. You can just click on a button and you can subscribe. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, as the podcast comes to a close here, Mark, I want you to be a little bit reflective about your career. I mean, it's been an amazing one and um, just your time on Capitol Hill. And now in terms of what you're doing to try and help scientists and universities and research institutes. So tell me a little bit about what your career has meant to you. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. You know, it's funny because when I left Capitol Hill, people would say, why are you working with scientists? <laughs> you know, you don't have a science background. It's a legitimate question because I, when you and I first met too, and I read your bio, that exact question crossed my mind. Yeah. Why are you doing it? And so enough people were asking that I decided that I should write a little piece about it. And uh, there is in the National Postdoc Association's online newsletter, which is called the post docket, um, there's an answer to that question. And I'll, I'll you know, spoiler alert to you, uh, if you decide to go to it or not, uh, I'll tell you sort of, you know, as I started to think about it, like, as you say, at least a totally legitimate question, like why doing this doesn't seem like it would be a natural progression. And so I started to think, you know, and so I started to think about like, why did I get into politics? You know, and I got into politics in short to try to make a meaningful difference. And, you know, come up with new initiatives that could make things better, whether it were Homeland Security or healthcare, foreign policy, you know, basically developing new things and new ideas and trying to move them forward so that they could help people, you know, in a broad scale. And when I thought about that, I, I basically thought, you know, scientists do pretty much the same thing. Um, they're in these new new environments. They're like in the white spaces, sometimes we you know, like to say, um, and they're trying to make things better by coming up with new discoveries and advancing those things. And to me, it would just seem like the tools were different. You know, I'm using the policy apparatus and, you know, the environment around that. And the scientists are using their range of tools. And other than that, it's really a very similar kind of mindset and attitude. And I always felt this kinship with scientists. And I think that was a big part of it. Had a lot of exposure 
as I mentioned earlier, with the fellows in the office, I always respected their expertise. And so, you know, that's been a big part of why I decided to do what I do right now. Um, and and I love doing it and I feel really privileged to be able to do it. I'd say one just higher level kind of approach to my career that I that I decided to take earlier on was I really wanted to have a job in government and then one in the private sector and then one in the nonprofit area and then decide sort of, you know, kind of infuse my work with learnings from those different places. It was kind of important to me to feel like I had experienced work life in these different sectors before I really, you know, focused on one of them. And I was fortunate to do that, you know, all the time on Capitol Hill, we talked about, uh, spent time working for a big management consulting firm, did some work for the, for a startup after that. So that was private sector. Um, I founded a co-founded a nonprofit um, with a friend. It was a tutoring and mentoring program in Washington, DC and, and all the elements of that. Um, and then, you know, really focusing on helping researchers, helping tech transfer offices with their missions. Now, um, I find that a lot of what I can bring to the table is infused by learnings from these different sectors across these different sectors. And there are definitely similarities that you see and that themes that you can bring forward. And then just other things that you're want to be mindful of that are distinct. So, yeah, I mean, I think that my overall approach to my career has been impact. Where can I make an impact based on my skills and my abilities? And I just feel really fortunate to have been able to have this career that I have so far. Well, it's been an amazing one. And, you know, making an impact, you certainly have done that. And that's very similar to the mission of tech transfer offices and the people in those offices who are working to make an impact each and every day to improve our world. So thank you so much, Mark. And, you know, this has been an absolute pleasure and delight having you on the podcast. It's been so great to be here with you, Lisa. It was a really fun conversation. Well, that's a wrap for this week's show. Catch you next time on the air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller, signing off for now. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.